Well, we're going to be in the scriptures today in the New Testament book of James. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and want to turn to James chapter 1, go ahead and do so. Uh, the words will be up on the screen as well, so you can follow along there. We're, we're in this series thinking about what does a real-life spirituality look like? In other words, given that we believe in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, as our King, as the Master, what should our lives look like in light of that? And so we're continuing in our series, finishing up uh, James chapter 1 today. And so we're going to be diving in and doing a deep dive just on one verse today. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. That is the headline by Matthew Paris in the Times, and it grabbed my attention. If you were here a year ago on a particular Sunday, you have heard me to refer to this. And I was thinking about it again this week as, as we're... Um, as I was studying and preparing for this message, and it caught my attention once again. Matthew Paris was a person who had grown up in Africa, but since moved to the States, and he made a trip back there. And so he wrote about what his suspicions were, what his emerging conclusions were, about what he was seeing on the ground. And so he titled this article, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And this is what he said. Traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too. One that I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say that the world would be better without it. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. Isn't that an amazing testimony from someone who says that they are an atheist? They look and see what Christians are doing in his homeland of Africa, and he says, you know what? My home country is better off because those Christians are there. That one phrase particularly grabbed me. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world. Do you think of your faith in those kind of terms? Would other people be able to look at your life and see you as a follower of Jesus and say that there is a liveliness and a curiosity and an engagement with the world in what I see in your life? I think that's exactly what James is after. As he kind of turns the corner in this letter that we're studying and pushes us to consider what a true living faith in Jesus looks like. And just setting us up for the next few times we're in, James, he's going to move towards talking about the difference between a live faith, one that's living and active, and a dead faith, or a fake faith. 
but we're not going to get there quite yet. Today we're going to look at James chapter 1, verse 27, and we're simply going to call our study today Compassionate Spirituality. And this is what James says in the last verse of chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows, I'm sorry, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If you've read this letter from James, the half-brother of Jesus, who's writing to these Christians who are uh, fleeing for their lives, who are suffering intense persecution, this is probably one of those verses that has stood out to you because we can imagine what their lives must have looked like and, and how they've had to help one another just make it through the day. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. How does this hit you? Let's unpack it just a little bit. First of all, there's that word religion. And nobody likes that word religion, right? (laughs) Even Christians sometimes shy away from this word because it has such a negative connotation in our day. I mean, sometimes it can take a positive connotation, but oftentimes it's, it's used to, to describe someone who's maybe uh, has all the outer trappings that they, they say they believe one thing, but whose life doesn't line up with that. When we hear James say religion here, we need to think of the faith that was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his new way of being human in this world. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so as we follow this one who is the way, the truth, and the life, what should our lives look like? So James, using that word that we don't like, religion, I'm using the word spirituality through our series because we're more comfortable with that, but he says religion or spirituality that is pure and undefiled before God. He uses these two words, pure and undefiled, which to his Jewish Christian audience would have automatically made them think of worship in the temple. A person had to be pure and undefiled to enter into the worship at the temple. And so before Christ came, that dealt with animal sacrifices. Once Christ came, he sacrificed himself once and for all. So that was no longer necessary. But what James is doing is he's taking those words that were used to describe the worship of the temple, pure and undefiled, and now he applies them to a new way of life. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Let's just note that that word, before God, reminds us that all of our life is lived before God. Everything we do and say and think and speak and act... All of that is done before the face of God. And he could have just left it at that, before God, and he would have gotten his message across. But he said, God the Father. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father reminds us that this God before whom we live is our loving and compassionate Heavenly Father. And so that's signaling for James something that he's going to talk about through the rest of this letter. So he says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, be honest with me. Does this surprise you? If you didn't know that this is what James was going to say, is this what you would have expected him to say? Let's look at that phrase again. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. How would you normally Flesh that rest of the sentence out in your thinking. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God is reading your Bible. It's prayer. It's finding solitude to to meditate on the goodness of God. It's worship, right? And I don't think James would deny any of those things. 
but he's highlighting something central to us that we normally don't think about as something that is deeply spiritual or religious. And so let me just ask this question. If visiting widows and orphans is highlighted as something that is not only spiritual, but pure and undefiled spirituality, what role does this activity play in your life as a follower of Jesus? Let me tell you, in my own history of following Jesus, this is something that came much later. My early years as a follower of Jesus was spent learning how to read the Bible, learning how to pray, learning how to stop doing the things I shouldn't be doing and start doing the right things I should be doing. And it's very much a very privatized thing in my life. And that was good. Many churches emphasize that, and that is good. But what is oftentimes not emphasized is how our faith should express itself in the real world, in engagement with the world. Sure, we would highlight someone who is maybe doing some uh, mission work in Africa, or someone who's you know, helping the poor out in our community. We would even say that's, that's a good thing to do. But it's not front and center, is it? At least not in my traditions I've, I've been around in Christianity. When we hear James talk about widows and orphans, we need to hear him think about the people who are most vulnerable in the ancient world. If you're a widow and you had no husband, you were in poverty continually. There was no safety net. There was no government handouts. There was nothing. And if you were orphaned, you had it even worse. You had no parents to look after you. You were literally a, a, a beggar your entire life. I have this graphic up here on the screen from the, the story of Ruth, who was a widow herself. And she found herself back in Israel at the field of this man named Boaz. And Boaz had to instruct his men to not touch her. These men of Israel were instructed not to touch her. He was standing up making sure this widow was not harassed by the men that he employed to work in his fields, and he told them to leave extra grain laying around so she could pick it up. We've talked about this before here at Mercy Hill Church. Nicholas Wolterstorff, in his book, Justice, Rights, and Wrongs, talks about the quartet of the vulnerable. That is, when you study the scriptures, both the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament writings we have from the apostles of Jesus, there's this quartet of the vulnerable that is continually mentioned over and over again. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. This quartet of the vulnerable is something that is very near and dear to the heart of Christ. Look at what the scriptures say. Moses, back in the book of Deuteronomy, said, The Lord your God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Do you normally think of God loving the foreigner? He does. How about Isaiah the prophet? Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Or the prophet Zechariah. This is what the Almighty, the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show compassion, I'm sorry, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the immigrant or the poor. This quartet of the vulnerable made up those people in society that people tended to ignore, to neglect, and try to forget. But God, over and over again, through the prophets, said, this is something near and dear to my heart. 
And if your heart beats with the same compassion that I have, you will care about these things as well. So back to James. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That word affliction just simply carries the connotations of people being in trouble, being in anguish, who are burdened, who are suffering, distress, find themselves in hard circumstances. James says, if you want to know the spirituality, the kind that God is after, what he wants to see in your life is this, that you would visit those who are in distress, in affliction. That word visit doesn't mean you have to fix them. It doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. But it does mean you, in a very real sense, show up for them. To visit means to, to look in after to check on, to care for. I was thinking about the story of Job and when his friends came to visit him. If you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, you know this man went through an incredible amount of suffering. He lost his family, he lost his wealth and possessions, and he was just in the worst possible situation. And his friends decided that they would come and be with him. This is what we're told in Job chapter 3. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Beldad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment. <laughs> that is, they, they scheduled this. They made an appointment together to come, to show him sympathy and, com- and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word, for they saw that his suffering was very great. I mean, this was literally a situation where there are no words, right? They saw their friend in great suffering, and they decided they wanted to go and be with him. And it was worse than they thought. And so they sat down and were just with him for an entire week. Think about what gift this was to Job. To know that he was not alone. That people saw him in his distress and in his affliction and in his burden. What gift did they give to him? The gift of their presence. The gift of visiting and caring and the gift of sorrow. I wonder if one of the reasons why we're reluctant to do what these friends of Job did is because we just don't like sorrow. We don't like it when people cry. We don't don't like to feel out of control. We don't like how messy life gets sometimes. We don't like the the questions that rise in in our own minds when we see someone suffering. And so instead of engagement with that moment, what we tend to do naturally is just to withdraw. Michael Card, in his book, His Sacred Sorrow, asks a very good question. He says, Why are Christians, of all people, embarrassed by tears, uneasy in the presence of sorrow, unpracticed in the language of lament? It is certainly not a biblical heritage, for virtually all of our ancestors in the faith were thoroughly acquainted with grief. And our Savior was, as everyone knows, a man of sorrows. So the question that presses upon us is this. 
Can we make time to visit the orphans and widows in our lives, seeing how they're doing, listening to their stories, bearing their burdens, and even weeping with those who weep? You see, if we can, James says, we're tapping into pure and undefiled religion. We're tapping into pure and undefiled spirituality. We're tapping into God's design for our lives. James says, in the same breath, let me just start back at the very beginning, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does he mean by that? It's interesting, reading some different commentaries, they think that James has taken a new direction here. To keep oneself unstained from the world is, you know, make sure you don't watch those things you shouldn't watch and, you know, don't be around people who who cuss and, you know, just those kind of things. But if we were to take in context what James is saying here, I think he's, he's speaking about something very particular. I mean, he's, he's talking about taking care of those who are most vulnerable. And he's going to go on and talk about how we sometimes show partiality to people who can advantage us and we ignore the vulnerable. So I think that James, when he says pure spirituality is to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's still on the same topic. The book of Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. In other words, don't become stained by the ways of the world and the way they normally treat those who are down and out. You are called to be different. This is part of the pure and undefiled spirituality that James is talking about there. I was thinking about the rest of the story of Job, and there's a point in this story, if you've never read this, it's really interesting, where he just recounts his own life and how he has showed up for those who are down and out. Listen to what he says. This is from chapter 29 and ends at 31. I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary... If I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow. If, if um, I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing, or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece for my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall off the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint." These would have been sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God. Do you hear what Job is saying? He's saying, I have kept my life uncontaminated from this world and the way people normally deal with those who are down and out. I have stood up for them. I've given my life to make sure that widows and orphans had a better chance than what they were given. And if I didn't do that, what does he say? These would have been sins to be judged, 
for I would have been unfaithful to God. Isn't it interesting that he says that he would have been unfaithful to God? I would have expected him to say I would have been unfaithful to the widow. I would have been unfaithful to the orphan or the immigrant who needed my help. But he says if I had neglected them, I would have been unfaithful to God. This is what James is after. This is what he wants us to see. And if I can summarize it, it would be something like this. A spirituality that is pure and undefiled before God our Father is a compassionate spirituality, one that is seen by the way we care for the most vulnerable in our lives. Things like Bible reading and prayer and worship are certainly included in pure and undefiled spirituality, but so is helping take care of the most vulnerable. Our anchor graphic for this series is taken from this etching from uh, Gustav Dore called The Good Samaritan, which is the story that Jesus told about someone who gets what it means to love others. And James wants us to get what it means to love others. That's the whole reason behind following Jesus, right? (laughs) Jesus says, The core of life is loving God with everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. To love one another as I have loved you. And so James is after a liveliness, a curiosity that is bred of love, and an engagement with the world in your life and in mine, particularly as it deals with the most vulnerable in our society. So let me just give us a a few points of application here. If it's true... (laughs) that pure and undefiled religion before God, our Father, is to care for the orphans and widows in our life, to visit them, to look after them, then let's make these three points of application. Let's remember that Jesus died to make us people who love justice, mercy, and faithfulness, who care for the widow and the orphan. This is part of what Jesus was doing when he came not only to show us what it meant to be a, a true human but who also died in order that we would be forgiven of those ways in which we fail and empowered to live that way. You see, in the Scripture's story, we all by nature are curved in on ourselves. All of us by nature live for our own kingdom, for our own interests. And when we're living that way, taking care of the most vulnerable doesn't often get on our radar screen, does it? Oh, sure, we might give some money over here. It's a good tax write-off. You know, we might see something at Christmas time and say, yes, we want to give to that. It helps us to feel better, but our lives are still curved in on ourselves. This is not something that is who we are. It's just something that we do every once in a while. The Apostle Paul says, time is coming when people will be lovers of self. Man, doesn't that describe our time? Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Job was a lover of God, and it manifested itself in the way he ministered to the poor. Jesus was a lover of God, and it manifested itself in the way that he cared for the poor. James, as the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem, loved God and ministered to the poor. See, it's in this context of of this inward inclination to just care for ourselves that Jesus came, this man from Nazareth. And when 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 he began his earthly ministry, he took up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and read these words out loud. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I know what probably some of you are thinking. Isn't he talking like a, on a spiritual level here? Yes, there is a spiritual application of this. Jesus is preaching good news to those who are spiritually impoverished. There's no doubt about that. But don't let his words, especially from the context of the book of Isaiah, who is so concerned about the poor and those who are oppressed, to be glossed over. Jesus says, I'm showing up now. And that is good news for the down and out. That is good news for the poor. That is good news for the captive. That is good news to the blind. That is good news for those who are oppressed. Why is that the case? Because Jesus is initiating a movement and a new way of being human that once it captures us, it brings us into the glorious kingdom of God and under his reign so that we care about the things that God cares about. Jeremy Treat in his book, Seek First, which talks about how... um, The subtitle here is How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. This was the message of Jesus. And he writes, God's reign is good news for the marginalized. God's heart is for the poor, the fatherless, immigrants and widows. These were often the most vulnerable people in society and were often taken advantage of or forgotten. But God has not forgotten them. He is the father of the fatherless. He is the husband to the widow, the provider of of the poor, and the refuge for the immigrants. In the Old Testament, God identified with the marginalized. In the New Testament, he became one of them. Jesus himself was born into poverty. Jesus himself had a soft spot for those who were oppressed. Jesus was always hanging out with the misfits and the outcasts, those who had been marginalized. And he spoke strong words to those who oppressed them. Peter, when he wanted to describe Jesus, described him this way. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, for God was with him. Yes, Jesus talked about deep things, spiritual things, about our lost connection with God and how he's restoring that. But he also went about doing good. He had miraculous powers, but he also showed care and compassion for those who needed it most. And so when we think about Jesus dying on the cross for us, let us think about him dying for all the ways we fail to do the things that we're called to do and how we do those things which we ought not. But let's also remember that part of that is not simply the forgiveness of sins, but to liberate us from that natural inclination that we have towards selfishness, to be able to follow him in his footsteps. This is the way Paul described it to Titus one of his fellow workers. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous. Zealous for what? Zealous for good works. Here's the second point of application. Let's embrace pure and undefiled spirituality. You see, the calling to seek justice and to love mercy is not an optional elective, but a requirement in the life course of being a human who walks humbly with God. We are not saying that our good works in any sense save us, but we are saying that if we are saved, those good works flow from our lives. And part of those good works involve 
care of the most vulnerable in our society. So let me ask you the question again. Is that on your radar screen? For many years as a Christian, it was not on mine. I was doing Bible study. I was reading theology books. I was getting together with Bible study. I was going to worship. But the care for the poor, for the oppressed, for widows and orphans, I didn't even have a category for that. And James says we ought to. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India, said, It is a terrible misunderstanding of the gospel to think that it offers us salvation while relieving us of responsibility for the life of the world, for the sin and sorrow and pain with which our human life and that of our fellow men and women are so deeply interwoven. Don't misunderstand him. Yes, salvation comes. No strings attached. You need forgiveness. You need welcome into the kingdom. God gives that to you freely in Christ. But with that, once you receive that, comes new life in Christ and the responsibility to care for the most vulnerable. Jeremy Treat, once again, his book is helpful. He says, the gospel creates a people who seek mercy and justice. Why? Because the gospel gives us eyes to see others the way God does and gives us new hearts. The gospel gets to the heart, drawing us to God and into God's mission. The more we understand the gospel, the more we are drawn into Christ's heart for the oppressed and hurting. Throughout scripture, we see that a true encounter with the grace of God leads to a sacrificial heart for the marginalized and the oppressed. Job knew this. Jesus knew this. James knew this. The Apostle John knows this. One of his letters, he writes these words. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let's overlay what James said into these words of John. If anyone has the world's goods and sees an orphan or a widow in need, yet closes his heart to them, how does God's love abide in that person? John says that's impossible. James says that's impossible. I'll never forget reading these words from Christopher Wright. He's a New Testament scholar. And he has this book called Knowing God Through the Old Testament, where he picks up on a lot of these themes and how they are traced into the New Testament. He says this, There is no true knowledge of God without the exercise of justice and compassion. I have to ask myself then, what is there in my life that shows any love for and practical commitment to the poor and the needy? Whatever else I do, can I see that God's concern for the weak and the poor is reflected at all in my praying, thinking, giving, and doing? Let me just leave that quote up there on the screen and ask you just to read that to yourself. It's a piercing question, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable question, isn't it? But it's an essential question, isn't it? 
especially when we take into light something Jesus, our Lord himself, said. If you looked at the Gospel of Matthew and turned to chapter 25, you would hear Jesus saying these words. He said, when the Son of Man comes, he's speaking of himself, when he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. All the nations. Russia and Ukraine. Israel and Palestine. Peru and Malawi. Canada and the United States will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, and here he gives the reason, For, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Jesus will say these words, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was, I was a stranger, I'm sorry, I was naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then Jesus will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Those are heavy words, aren't they? Those are deeply unsettling words, aren't they? But we need to get what Jesus is saying here. A true faith in him will express itself in care and concern for those who are most vulnerable. And if this is not a part of your faith in Christ, we need to ask some tough questions, right? So, just point blank. What is the evidence of pure and undefiled religion in your life? Can you do an inventory of your life like Job did and point out the ways in which this pure and undefiled spirituality is showing up? I'm sure there is more to a pure and undefiled spirituality than visiting orphans and widows in their stress. But there is not less than this. Sure, there's more. There's, there's Bible reading, there's prayer, there's worship, there's evangelism. Yes, all of that is included. But it's not less than visiting those who are in distress. I, I know that, in a sense, when we look at what's going on around us, and we see the suffering in our community, in this world, it can be overwhelming. 
And it can almost push us back into doing nothing. Can what I do make any difference? I'm reminded of these beautiful words from Mother Teresa, whose life embedded taking care of poor uh, widows and orphans. She said, if you can't feed 100 people, feed just one. Don't do nothing. Engage with the brokenness that you see. Where are the widows in our community? Where are the orphans in our community? Where are they in our lives? Are you engaged or are you missing in action? You see, to belong to Christ, as two authors have said, to be adopted into his family is to begin to care about what he cares about, to move outside ourselves and toward others in mercy and justice. So we've talked about how Jesus died to make us people who love justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And we've talked about how we need his grace in our lives to turn us into those kind of people. Here's one final point of application. Let's encourage one another to be more intentional in in doing good. The scriptures themselves say this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We need to be stirred up to love and good works. We all get busy, we get distracted, we, get in, we have the best of intentions, but sometimes the ball just gets dropped. And this is where fellow believers in Christ can come in. What if we began to, to have coffees and lunches and ask ourselves these kind of questions? What are some ways you have sought to be intentional in good deeds? How is this trust that you have in Jesus working itself on a, out in a very practical way among those who need it the most? How are you wanting to grow in this area? What are some ideas that you have that, that maybe I can participate in as well? We need to be stirred up. We need to be challenged. We need to be encouraged to live this kind of life that James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Jesus himself is calling us to. One final word here, my friends, from the Apostle Paul. Let us not become weary in doing good. <laughs> it's really easy, isn't it, to become weary in doing good? Paul knows that. But he says, let's not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Jesus says you cannot give a cup of cold water in his name to one of his disciples without him rewarding the socks off of you. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? I don't know why I said that. Jesus says, I I see it, and the reward is coming. It is coming. So Paul says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Friends, may God work in you a compassionate spirituality, a living faith, a faith that works, a faith that engages the world, all for the glory of Christ and the good of our neighbors, and especially for the orphans and the widows.